You're listening to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. Listen in for news and insights on how Opportunity Zones, private equity funds, and private real estate can help you grow your wealth. Now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. And today, we're going back to where it all began. We're talking about the backstory, Jimmy, why you and I love alternative investments. We eat, breathe, sleep, live, invest in alternative. What else do we do with alternative? Everything. We are all in. Is that accurate? Yeah, we're all in on being an investor, whether that's passive, or we're also entrepreneurial investors where we invest in our own companies, right, Andy, that we that we uh, that we manage and run. Yeah, and I think that's you know what you just mentioned, the fact that we're entrepreneurs. That's really how we got into alts. And it's funny, so many LPs that I've met, they also have their own businesses. There are just so many entrepreneurs and business owners who are investing into alternatives. And I do, I do think there's a link there. So let's actually talk about that link. Let's let's start where it all began. Why do Jimmy and I, why do we love alternative investments so much? Why are we so invested into alts? That story, I think, starts in our dorm room about 20 years ago. Would you say that's accurate, Jimmy? Yeah. So if this is our origin story, we need to go back to North Quad, Stanford Hall at the University of Notre Dame, right, Andy? That's right. Now take us there. Paint the picture. Yeah. So, well, uh, let's see. I'm a year older than you, I, I, but I met you in the dorm. I was a sophomore. You were a freshman. We became friends, right? Because uh, we lived right across the hall from each other. Um, a lot of your friends became my friends and vice versa. And we, a couple years later, we became business partners. We started making websites in our dorm room, right, Andy? Uh, during my senior year, your junior year. Yeah, and started. It, we were still in school. Yeah, we we yeah, did we were start st- our first business in school. Yeah, yeah. Steve Jobs um, started Apple in a garage in in uh, Steve Wozniak's garage, or maybe it was vice versa. Yeah. Um, uh, Michael Dell started. Dell computers in his garage. Uh, we don't have a garage story, but we have a dorm room story. I think that's our origin story, similar to a garage. It's, a little it's bit. The uh, next best thing, if you can't, if you can't be building a computer in a garage, I think the next best thing is to be building a website in your dorm room. So yeah, yeah, can't agree it, with that. Can't can't disagree with that. <laughs> it started there, and so you and I, you know, our first business, even our first couple of businesses, probably maybe made a little money. Nothing really hit huge traction, but the, they became, they sort of evolved into what I would say was our first big hit in the field of lead generation. So you and I, we were into lead generation, we were into marketing, and we built this first company uh, and we sold it for at the time, you know, for us was like incredible amount of money to, us, you know, two, two guys in their early twenties, we yep. sold it to a private equity group, a strategic buyer. And we were like, well, that, well, that's pretty cool, <laughs> right? And and then we turned around and built a second company in that same space. And then we ended up building a third company, ETF database. Um, and so, you know, we're serial entrepreneurs. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, absolutely. I would even say, by the way, the uh, the the first dorm room businesses that we built, Andy, it, looking back on it now, it wasn't a lot of money, but at the time we were making a few hundred bucks a month. And for two poor, starving college <laughs> students, that was some extra beer money and some extra yeah. going out on the town and taking our friends out to dinner money. That was pretty cool to have at the time, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, so it, there's a lesson there. It doesn't matter 
how small you start, right? The point is to get started. So well, it gave us, it gave us a taste too. And it's like, this is fun. This is fun. We're making some extra money. We're kind of in control of things. And again, you're right. It wasn't a lot of money, absolutely speaking, but relatively speaking for us at the time, it was fun. And it was, it was a pretty good chunk of change we were making. Yeah. For a couple of college kids, no, yeah, for a couple no of college kids, it was, wasn't bad. So you and I, so we basically been business partners for 20 years. Yep. Um, or maybe 19, but we'll call it 20. We're we'll, we'll rounding up to 20. Sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll round it up. And, and then our next kind of big hit was ETF database, which I, I have to give credit to Michael Johnston, who's another one of our current business partners, who was the primary guy there. But you and I built that company with him. We ended up selling ETF database. And by the way, at its peak, I think it was arguably or, or maybe inarguably the largest independent media covering exchange traded funds in the United States. So that's pretty cool that we built that. We sold it to a strategic buyer, uh, which later evolved, merged, evolved, exited, is now kind of part of Vetify, which is a huge, very successful, awesome company. Um, but in all of that journey, and I don't regret any of it, by the way, but through those transactions, we built these businesses and we sold them. And in hindsight, you know, several years later, I, I realized, wow, the, the private equity buyers in those transactions, they did very, very well on those deals, right? Like as a, as a seller, you know, when, you, when you're an entrepreneur, you build a business, a lot of times consciously or not, you're driving towards that liquidity event. Would you say that's fair, Jimmy? I think that's fair, especially, I don't know about everybody, but anecdotally speaking, Andy, like for me, for you and for Michael, like the three of us, we were in our mid to late 20s when we had some of those exits. And when we exited ETF database, mm -hmm. it kind of depends how much cash do you have in the bank account, right? Are you cash poor? Will this type of liquidity event materially change your life? And, and yeah. some of these exits that we had in our 20s, they did. They did materially change my life, at least. And I think yours and Michael's as well. As we get a little bit older now, entering our 30s, and I just hit 40 last year, Andy, we look back and we think, boy, maybe we shouldn't have done that at the time. Again, I don't know if it's regret. And I don't think I do have regret. I don't, I'm actually not saying we shouldn't have done that. But I kind of see things from the other side of the transaction. As the buyer, as the private equity buyer, they really did have a pretty good outcome there we did too, because we were cash poor at the time and now we're not, but they were able to grow those companies even further. And as you mentioned, the case of ETF database, it got rolled up a couple more times. Illyrian ended up buying it a large index provider and they rebranded recently as Vetify. Uh, it sure would be nice to, uh, actually, I should point out that I, that, that I am at least, and I think you are too, Andy, we do still own a very, very small minority interest in Vetify. Gotta let, you got to let that stock ride, right? The yeah, but it would be it'd be ride. nice to own much more of it, of course, at this point in time. But but yeah, you can't have regrets about exiting a little bit early. Maybe. Well, that, that's the thing, because you're as an entrepreneur, your net worth, it's it's illiquid mm. and it's very um, it's, it's non-diversified. It's so it's it's, it's very concentrated, right? It's like you, yes. you you're not just working 40, 50, 60 hours a week at this one place, you're not investing just your time, but all of your capital is tied up there as well. And it's illiquid. You can't, it's hard to extract it. Uh, and we had some cash flow coming in on, on all three of these companies that you mentioned. So we were, we were cutting ourselves a, a salary. Uh, we were taking some 
partner distributions quarterly or, or semi-annually but, at least. But it's but it's not the same as just it's a, not the same a big, as a getting big a big liquidity fall. event. Yeah, and and then we ended up building a fourth company, and we we sold we essentially built all of these and sold them all to private equity or to strategic buyers who are backed by private equity. And again, no regrets, but you can kind of look back at it in hindsight, where you sell a company you know, essentially for 7X or 10X EBITDA or whatever, you know, seven or 10X earnings, the private equity buyers are buying by that company and then they may have other resources or strategies or whatever, and, and they can grow it from there. But you as the entrepreneur, you say, okay, I have my liquidity, right? You, you do whatever you do. You might, you know, go buy a house, but, but then you say, okay, what do you do with that liquidity? You don't just keep it in a savings account. If you do that very long, you're going to lose a ton of value in real terms, right? So you have to invest it. And if you invest it in liquid, you know, ETFs, mutual funds, index funds, bond funds, those types of things, you quickly realize, wow, the yield on these is very, very low. So like I may have just sold my private company at seven or 10X. Now I'm going to go take that money and go invest in an index fund that's essentially... Well, 20 or 25 X. Exactly. In yeah. terms of dividend yield, it might be 50 X, but in terms of earnings yield, sure. Yeah, I'm looking at, it. if you're looking at a PE ratio of like the broad S and P 500, you're not buying it for seven or 10 X. You're buying it for, I don't know what it is currently. It's got to be like 20 to 30, somewhere in that range. I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. So that's, that's, I mean, we call it the illiquidity premium to kind of put a positive spin on it, but I would almost call it the liquidity penalty. Right, so you you want to exit this business that you've built and invest it in more liquid, you know, normal typical investments. But the fact of the matter is, those yield less and they tend to return less because they're they're considered you know more diversified and less risky or, or whatever. They just they just trade at much higher multiples, and that's that's kind of what I realized is that you may have had an income stream from this business you sold, but then when you go and invest it. You know, you're really trading one asset for another. And when you trade, generally speaking, when you trade that illiquid asset into a liquid asset, you're trading into a much lower income stream. Lower income stream, uh, lower upside, but I would also say lower risk too, right? Like uh, companies like ExxonMobil, uh, Microsoft, IBM, um, Coca-Cola are much less risky than Jimmy and Andy's startup business from the dorm room, probably, wouldn't you say? That's fair to say. Yeah, no, that that that's true. That's yeah. true. And so I think, you know, looking at it, you know, from a very zoomed out perspective, the question is, well, what kind of risk can you afford? Right. So if you're a year or two or five years from retirement and you have a chance to exit your business and and go, you know, into more safer, more traditional investments, I could that that definitely would be a logical choice. But at a certain point, you can see why at the other end of the spectrum, like, you know, endowment funds at the Ivy League schools, right? Like the famous Yale and Harvard endowment funds, they can afford to take more risk. Like these are basically perpetual endowments. They don't have a one to five year time horizon. They're basically perpetual. So they kind of go to that extreme and they say, well, we don't need this liquidity. Mm -hmm. Right. We're Harvard. We've been around for whatever, 400 years for <laughs> long. Harvard's been around. Yeah. yeah. Our endowment fund, you know, our endowment funds likely to be around another 400 years. So we don't need this immediate liquidity. Why not go to this much further end along this risk return profile 
invest in illiquid businesses that uh, are frankly just better investments that generate higher returns over the long run. So that's that's the illiquidity premium, right? That's the that's the Harvard, that's the Yale portfolio made famous by David Swenson. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right, Andy. Once you get up above a certain number of of AUM, let's say, or or investable assets, liquid net worth, whatever you want to term it, I think it becomes more commonplace that you'll see your percentage of your portfolio in alts grow. Um, yeah, I, I was speaking with a hundred millionaire um, a, a couple years ago. Um, in, in, well, Jimmy, in, we just say a 10th billionaire, you know, 10th billionaire, let's say, sure. <laughs> and I was asking him and he, and he's, he's an asset manager as well. And I was asking him, you know, what percentage of your own portfolio do, do you have in alts? And he floored me when he said 98% basically are in alts. And at first I thought he was crazy. And then it dawned on me, oh, well, I guess that kind of makes sense. He doesn't have a need for liquidity, like maybe a, 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 a more median type of I mean, isn't that another way have. of saying that he's keeping two million bucks in in liquid assets? He's keeping which, two million bucks in liquid assets. Which boy, case... really? How much liquid assets do you need? Unless you're unless you own five mansions and private jets or whatever, how much liquidity do you need to support your lifestyle? Right? Like if if you're out of work for a year or two years, even how much liquidity do you need to support your lifestyle, take care of your family or whatever? Well, anything way beyond that. Is really excess liquidity, right? So if you keep it all in these liquid investments, conceptually speaking, you'll be paying that liquidity penalty. Now, I want to you want to you want to limit the amount of your portfolio that you're paying that penalty on. Exactly, and, and to be clear, I have a very diversified portfolio. So I mean, I'm very heavily invested in alternatives, but I own your normal index funds, ETFs, you know, stock and bond funds. Just over time more and more of my portfolio is shifting into alternatives. So I, I do want to be clear. I'm not like a hundred percent in alts, but really since that aha moment, you know, that, or that process, like it wasn't really one moment. It was more process, a, a dawning realization. And it's funny, Jimmy, cause it's like, I knew it, but it still take, took time for me to act on that information, I guess is how I would put it. So, but as this kind of dawning realization, I just decided, you know, Alts are where the real money is made. Well, if you want to invest like a billionaire, right, Andy? Billionaires don't have a lot of their money tied up in the stock market or in the bond market. They're not just investing at Vanguard and they've got a basket of three, four, or five index ETFs or index mutual funds like you and I have, right? Uh, when you when you start commanding that much money, you have that much net worth or that much AUM, you can go outside of that traditional type of portfolio that people have been telling us all of our lives, hey, invest here, invest low cost, 60-40 is the way to go. You can kind of get a little more creative and chase some outsized returns once you have a minimal level of liquidity available to you. Exactly. I mean, basically the mindset is keep liquid what you need liquid. And by the way, that could be a psychological need. And that's okay because everyone's portfolio is personal, right? But once you're at that level, you're going to generate higher returns generally with alternative investments. 
Now the devil's in the details, right? So it's not like every alternative investment is a slam dunk. But when I look back at my own investing career, un- by the way, with the alts, there have been, especially with angel investing, there's been a few clunkers, right? But that, by the way, that's part of angel investing. That's part of VC, you know, that power law. But on the whole, unquestionably, I've generated higher returns with alternative investments. And so I think you and I both were maybe, you know, on some funds, we're literally LPs in the same fund. There may be some different investments that we're different on, but we're, we're both pretty much playing in these same sandboxes, which is we've done angel investments. Uh, we're LPs in venture capital. We are LPs in private real estate funds. And then we also do private equity. And when I use private equity, I use that in a very broad sense because um, that that can mean a couple different things. And, and and honestly, you know, somebody asked me what my favorite was, and like I I guess I might say private equity, but Jimmy, I I honestly love it all. Like I I really <laughs> do love it all. I do too, and yeah, I think I am a lot like you, Andy. And you know, I've I've actually really kind of always liked investing ever since I started first building up my bank account um, in college and right after college, figuring out where to put my money. Actually, I was kind of a boring investor when I first started, Andy. I remember um, interest rates on CDs in the mid-2000s were paying like 5 or 6%. So I had a lot of my money just in CDs for a while, um, which helped cushion the the blow of the financial crisis of 08, 09. I, I missed a lot of that. Or 07, 08, 09, I guess I should say. But uh, like you, Andy, I do have a lot of my net worth in liquid assets at my brokerage account. Uh, I use Vanguard. I've got a portfolio of, I think, four or five different index mutual funds. Pretty boring, plain vanilla type funds investing in the broad stock market, broad bonds. I'd have to take a look and see what the others are. But I have started peeling off a little bit more here and there over over the last few years, investing in different private equity real estate funds, opportunity zone funds specifically, uh, with a couple of capital gain events that I've had in the last couple of years and some venture capital funds. We've done a little bit of angel investing, you and I, Andy, uh, over the years. Some hits, some failures. That's okay. That's all part of the process. Uh, but yeah, I would say the the biggest returns I've ever had have been in myself and my own companies, our own companies, Andy, right? Those are can be looked at as private equity investments that you and I have made just small amounts of capital put to work on an idea that you and I entrepreneurially have worked on together. Those have created huge returns for us, right? 50x, 100x in, in, some, in, uh, in some cases. Yeah. And I think, you know, with, with private equity, so here's the interesting thing with private equity. And by the way, you know, you're right that a lot of our successes have been that very actively managed, you know, you basically call it a startup, I would yeah. say at a certain point. But I've also had some success uh, with private equity where I'm more passive, mm-hmm. you know, where I'm I'm an LP. And, you know, one one theme I would say is when you're buying in with private equity, you're generally buying in at a much lower multiple. Right. So if you're if your multiple is like infinity because it, you're investing in something without any revenue traction, then I'm like, well, that's an angel investment, right? Yeah. Private equity, you're typically buying an operating business that's generating free cash flow already. And right off the bat, you're generally buying in a lower multiple, right? A lower PE ratio or lower EBITDA multiple. And then the idea is, 
you know, like with one investment I made, I was a passive investor. I was an LP, um, but I offered a little bit of strategic, you know, value to them. And just even just like a tiny bit of strategic value was able to enhance their trajectory a little bit. But even aside from that, they already just had a good growth path. And that investment for me, it's been almost entirely passive. It's been very, very successful. And and that investment, you know, the, the one that I'm thinking of in particular, it really demonstrates the point to me. There's more generally more alpha and alternative investments. But there's also this other side of portfolio diversification and almost locking up your money in a business, in an illiquid business versus having it in the stock market, which can kind of feel very ethereal or like you're at a casino or something. Do you, do you know what I mean, Jimmy? Yeah, you you turn on the TV and you can see the values of all of your investments scroll by <laughs> on the bottom of the TV screen throughout the course of the day right. if all of your investments are liquid in some sort of brokerage account if you're if you if all you own are stocks or bonds you're going to always know mm-hmm. exactly how much your assets are worth which can be a good thing but it can also be a bad thing i mean imagine if you pulled into the driveway of your house and there was a big number above your house that was changing in real time uh every no every, it's, i don't think it's day. a good thing and a bad thing jimmy i think it's yeah pretty much just a bad thing. I mean, like what you just described. Psychologically, about- behaviorally. Um, yeah, yeah, Andy, it's funny. Actually, I was I was just doing a podcast with DJ Van Curen, our, our family office real estate institute friend uh, earlier this morning. And we brought up this very point. Uh, and I mentioned to him, the investor's worst enemy sometimes is himself or herself, right? I mean, the, the types of behavioral mistakes that investors get themselves into being able to trade at any hour of the day, you oftentimes see investors buy high, sell low because the psychology works against them. The behavioral mechanisms of the human mind just kind of work against that investor so often. So by locking up your money in some illiquid assets, whether it's your house or a business that you're running or someone else's business that you've invested in passively, uh, it helps you avoid those behavioral mistakes, doesn't it, Andy? Yeah, and it's interesting because we were talking about this, you know, liquidity premium or, uh, excuse me, illiquidity premium, mm-hmm. or we should call it liquidity penalty. Conceptually, to me, it's almost backwards, right? Like conceptually, like I understand in a pure abstract basis if everyone were totally rational robots, which they aren't. Right. That's the the problem, though. The market (laughs) is not rational. There is no invisible hand that's a rational, invisible hand guiding the market. It's all a bunch of irrational human actors. We're not robots. We have emotions. We have psychology. Apes like you and me, Jimmy. Exactly. Exactly. But back to this illiquidity premium, it's almost like you should get a liquidity premium because by going into all these liquid investments it's like you're playing with fire you're investing you're investing in something that is more likely to bring out the worst in your behavior it's like you're tempting fate and you know i can look back in my investing investment career i'm pretty good i have a pretty strong stomach for the ups and downs of the market but especially early on i can see that i fell into some of those behavioral mistakes and I think some listeners or just some people out there might think, well, that's those are the dumb investors. 
that's not me. I would never fall into that trap. And it's like, okay, well, if a hundred thousand people walk through a casino and or hang out in a casino for three hours, how many of them end up playing a slot machine, right? For pretty fair percentage. So if you're saying, well, I'm not going to be one of those investors who fall into the behavioral trap, it's like, I'll pat you on the back and I'll say, okay, I guess you're one of the two or three percent. Yeah, they're they're the same types of people who say, hey, commercials don't work on me, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So it's kind of the irony of liquid investments is if you're willing to just say, you know what, I'm going to take average, I'm going to grind down my costs, I'm going to be okay with the median. If you just buy and hold with liquid investments, you go. If you're actually able to do that, you'll end up being on like the 90th percentile. That's a really good outcome. I was going to say, Andy, that's yeah. a really really good outcome. Well, because most investors in the stock market, their actual real world returns trail the stock market, hmm. period. Right? So if someone says, well, the S&P returns 9% a year, do alts return 9% a year? I go, well, the average investor doesn't return with the S&P what the S&P returns because the median investor is trailing it by a significant amount. So I think, you know, when we're thinking about alternatives, for me, it's not just we're um, you know generating more alpha, we're getting higher returns. It's also just a style of investing that mm, it's a fit for me. Like it feels good in my gut, and I know that when I'm going illiquid, I'm more likely to make good decisions. I'm more likely to stay patient. I'm more likely to think long term. It's just a better style of investing. I think the long-term thing, that's where you hit the nail on the head. That investment horizon that you have that or that runway that you have, the amount of time you have to invest, if you keep your eye on that long-term prize, because if you need liquidity right away, an alternative investment might not be right for you. But if if you're early enough in your career or you, you you have other forms of liquidity that that you're able to access, you've got some extra capital left over. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's keeping your eye on that long-term prize of letting that investment eat for as long as possible and accruing those returns slowly over time through the ups and downs. The market is going to show ups and downs all the time. You open up the Wall Street Journal on any given day, right? And it'll say, Stocks were up or stocks were down. It'll even ascribe a singular reason oftentimes, which I think is kind of funny because I, I, I think it's very hard to know why exactly the stock market went up or down. Right. But we have an it's alternative kind of like, investment. It's kind of like saying a, a butterfly flapped its wings in Beijing, so it rained today or something. It's exactly. Not- exactly. I mean, it oftentimes is that ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's obvious why the stock market goes up or yeah. down. There's some huge seismic event. In, in the world or, or some huge economic event in the world. But on a day-to-day basis, the stock market goes up, the stock market goes down. Yep. We don't really know why sometimes, but the Wall Street Journal, and I don't mean to pick on the Wall Street Journal, I actually love that newspaper, but but all, all these different financial media organizations will try to ascribe some sort of reason why. Um, but with alts, with illiquid investments, you don't, you're not bothered by the volatility day-to-day. It, that, it's not even matter, it's immaterial. Um, and it's actually right. impossible to track with alts, which, as you point out, Andy, psychologically, behaviorally speaking, probably a good thing. Yeah. And, you know, so we talked about what what have we the benefits of alts so far 
you know, more alpha, higher returns. But I think now we're really honing in on the second big benefit, which is diversification. Yeah. And you've talked a lot about, you know, the behavioral traps and sort of, you know, sleeping more soundly, thinking long-term. I think the other side of it is if you look at the research, the academic research, you know, from a mathematical standpoint, alternatives tend to be less volatile, or at least in the context of an overall portfolio, they lower that overall portfolio volatility. But I think what well, you and I part, kind of, part of that might just be that they're not mark to market every day, like like stocks are, right? They're, but at they're the end of the day, once a year at, or a couple times a year. At the end of the day, what does it matter, right? If it's helping investors right. achieve better outcomes, if they're literally not able to sell during a flash crash or mm. or whatever, then that's improving investor outcomes. So, you know, those are two really big benefits. The third one that I do want to talk about, it's not quite as fun. Because everything we talked about, so like talking about and making investments in venture capital, I'm sorry, Jamie, this is fun, right? Like is, you just, yeah. you feel like a, you know, like I'm somebody, I'm investing in venture capital or I'm investing in private real estate or I'm investing in private equity. That's fun. The third thing here, tax benefits, that's a huge part of investing in alternatives. And it's funny because I always talk about triple net returns, right? So doesn't matter what an investor theoretically grosses as gross returns. You have to factor in inflation, fees, and taxes to find out their real returns, You know their actual real life returns in their portfolio. Taxes are just the least exciting thing. And it's like, if, if I build a portfolio that generates an additional 100 basis points of alpha because I'm a, an investing genius, I get so many utils from that, right? I'm just I'm just like <laughs> drowning in utils. But if I earn that same 100 basis points in triple net returns with tax mitigation strategies, it's kind of like, eh, that's okay, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, man. That, that me, you and I are different there. I like the tax mitigation strategies. That to me, they're exciting. I get utils from taking advantage of of a tax. Uh, incentive here or a tax policy there, whatever you want to call it. I, 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 I get a, I get a rush from that stuff, man. I don't know. All right. Well, that, that's where well, you that, and I differ. <laughs> well, that's fair. And let's talk about some of these tax advantages, right? So first, you know, with oil and gas, with, and I mean, with <laughs> investing in energy investments, some of these have enormous tax deductions. So they're very attractive to investors who have a very high current income and are looking to you know, lower some of their current year taxable income. So big upfront deductions with energy investments, but a lot of other alternatives have huge tax benefits as well. Uh, obviously real estate, let's talk about real estate, Jimmy. What are the tax benefits of real estate? Well, I want to go back to oil and gas because you glossed over, I think depletion is the word you're looking for there, a depletion allowance, something like that. I forget exactly what it's called, but as an, as an oil well is actually like physically depleted, you get to write that off. Um, but yeah, moving on to real estate, um, depreciation is a huge one, right? Mm -hmm. You get to depreciate uh, the value of the building. And then if you want to get really sophisticated, you can do a cost segregation study. And instead of just depreciating the building, you can depreciate all of the assets that go into constructing the building. So you can depreciate the floors, the copper piping in the walls, the washing machines and dishwashers, and they all have different depreciation schedules. But Jimmy, okay, just I got to stop you there. Just hearing about this stuff, 
I'm about to black out. The, I like it. I like no, this no, stuff. The, you don't like it. Here's the good news, though. Like, like I'm an LP in a private real estate fund, right? And I know that they're on top of all that so that when I get my K-1, all that stuff that you just said, it's done for me, right? Exactly. Because I'm investing with a smart manager and it's done for me. So I think with real estate, the interesting thing is you're stacking all of these tax benefits because everything you just said, you know, depreciation and like this operational the nooks and crannies of the tax code. We haven't even gotten to the 1031, right? The 1031, one of the very most powerful tax mitigation strategies, estate planning tools. I mean, it's just a huge benefit for real estate investors, right? Yeah, the 1031 and then its fractionalized counterpart, the Delaware Statutory Trust or the DST, essentially allows investors to buy an investment property, sell it, and then instead of paying tax on that gain from the appreciation, if you roll over your uh, sales proceeds into another uh, investment property, you essentially defer capital gains taxation indefinitely. And you can continue to kind of daisy chain together these 1031 exchanges over the course of your entire life without ever having to recognize a capital gain. And upon death, the fair market value of the invest I'm sorry the the co- the basis of the investment properties that you're left with step up to fair market value for your heirs so your heirs never have to pay taxes on the capital gains at all so it essentially completely eliminates capital gain taxation if you string together these 1031s over the course of your career um properly Swap till you drop. Yeah. Swap I mean, till you drop, as so you like we, to say, Andy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, between depreciation, between 1031, DSTs, we don't really have time to talk about opportunity zones today, but we're both investors in the opportunity zone programs. There's all sorts of tax deductions and tax, tax advantage wrappers, tax advantage strategies available to real estate investors, to energy investors, to all sorts of these investments. So whether you kind of nerd out about that stuff like Jimmy does, or if you just sort of enjoy it passively as an LP to let somebody else do the hard work of figuring out those details. That's a huge benefit of alternative investments. So we have more alpha, portfolio diversification, tax benefits. And then my last one, they're fun. They're just fun. fun. Yeah. It's just, it's fun to be an LP in a venture fund. It's fun to do angel investing. If you have the time, because it's kind of time intensive, it's fun to be an LP and be able to say, okay, I own a piece of uh, yeah, an apartment. Yeah, it's fun building. to talk about and it's fun to podcast about too, right, Andy? Absolutely. And I know um, in our listenership, you know, on our YouTube channel, folks who come to our events, there's just a lot of like-minded investors, right? It's, yeah. it's, and it's not even a small community anymore. It's really, you know, there's, there's always been folks investing in all this, but I really feel like it's, gaining steam. Would you say that's accurate? It's gaining steam. The tent is getting bigger. We're bringing more investors into the tent as as I, we, we kind of like to say that 60-40 is dead. I don't know if that's 100% true, but I think- No, it's dead. Last... No, it's, it's, I, dude, I saw the death certificate. Um, <laughs> you saw the cadaver? The <laughs> it's dead. It's, it's dead. It's dead and buried. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it, it suffices to say this type of investing- Alternative investing is becoming more accessible to more high net worth investors over time and is becoming more popular as well. So there's more supply and there's more demand for it, seemingly coalescing. Um, and that's why we founded Wealth Channel, Andy. 
to build this community of high net worth investors and to try to bring more education, more awareness of what alternative investing is and what types of alternative investments are available to such investors. Yeah. And, you know, you, you kind of, Jimmy, to give credit, you know, where credit's due, really Wealth Channel began several years ago when you started covering the opportunities on space. We were already investing in alts, but you started covering it from that media side and you started running events for real estate investors under the Opportunity DB brand. You know, then we branched out. We have the Alts Expo. I launched this podcast and we realized, you know, we're actually starting to build. It's almost like a tribe. It's, yeah. You know, it's, it's a community, but we had, you know, several different websites and all this. And it's like, you know what? It's just time to bring this all under one umbrella. So that's what we're doing with Wealth Channel. We're bringing everybody into one umbrella. And we have how many events? Like, Roughly right now, I think we have seven events planned. We're for doing this like year. seven or eight events this year. Yeah, but under... you know, you and I are kind of famous. Every once in a while, like we'll wake up on July third or something, and we'll be like, you know what? I want to do an oil and gas event in August twentieth. Can we make that? You know, or, or whatever. So I'm <laughs> yes, sure that exactly. It's just you, you know, we we like to make it exciting. We like to make it fun. You know, sometimes we'll meet people, new sponsors, new products, new trends, and and so we you know we like to we like to kind of keep it fun. And, and I, I have to say, it's really that community that we're building that I think is the key that, that makes the whole thing run and gel because at our events, there's so much interaction, you know, the live Q and a, it's a tremendous amount of fun. That was our big well, so aha moment. I think we had a, a few months ago, Andy was, wait a second. We're not just putting education out there into the ether. We're actually building a community. We have tens of thousands of followers Mm-hmm. cross platforms on on our email lists and our our YouTube account and and our LinkedIn accounts and there, there's a lot of people that look to us as experts as curators of all of this knowledge and it really has kind of become a community of high net worth investors for sure yeah and it's a, I I have to say I can honestly say it's a privilege you know to be I running agree. these events and to do the podcast I mean I've had folks on this show two years ago before I started the show I've had you know, leaders on the show. I'm like, I, I never would have even imagined that they would come on our show. It's not really about us. I think it's about so many high net worth investors are are increasingly embracing alts. And they're just there was almost like a void of of community or a place where people could go and talk about this and where investors could talk with each other. So I think to some extent we kind of lucked out, you know, <laughs> by by founding Wealth Channel and by launching these podcasts. Um, but we're almost out of time. Uh, Jimmy, before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to plug everybody, to plug our project, to tell our you know audience of high net worth investors where they can go to learn more about Wealth Channel, our events, and keep up with all our content. Yeah. I mean, at Wealth Channel, like you said, we're building a, a premier community for high net worth investors, alternative investing, opportunities on investing, accredited investor type of investment options. You can find out more about this community and the events that we run at wealthchannel.com. And please also follow us on YouTube. We produce a lot of video content, whether it's this show, the Alternative Investment Podcast, or my show, the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. We have all of that under the Wealth Channel umbrella at youtube.com slash at symbol wealthchannel.com. And I got to put that in our show notes. So uh, I'll make sure to link to Wealth Channel. I'll make sure to link to our YouTube channel. And um, 
you know, honestly, you got to subscribe on YouTube. That's really where the magic happens, right? I, Jimmy, I don't want to, I don't want to pressure any of our listeners. Let's just say you and I, we have a number in our head. <laughs> we do. We know what it is. And we're not going to be happy until our YouTube channel hits that number. So if you're interested at all, make sure to go, go to YouTube, smash that subscribe button, and we will see you for our next episode. Jimmy, thanks again for joining me on the show today. Thanks, Andy. It's been great. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.